The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. You can learn more about my work there by going to miningstocks.com. That's www.miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to our show. I also want to thank our sponsors for the first hour of this show for making this show financially possible. The sponsors for our first hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold Corp., Resource Consultants, Magellan Minerals, Metanor Resources, Timmins Gold Corp., Riverside Resources. And today we have a new sponsor. I want to thank American Bonanza for joining us as a sponsor to this show. American Bonanza trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol BZA. Uh, it has 118 million shares outstanding. It's selling at about 15 cents. It sounds like a real penny stock, but it has a project going uh, into production or at least moving towards production in Arizona that looks very, very promising relative to what this company's uh, market cap is. And we'll be talking to the president next week uh, on our show. Uh, he'll be telling us more about the company uh, and its prospects, but uh, press release they put out today suggests that the company can produce about 45,000, 46,000 ounces of gold at $415 an ounce. Uh, and a 13-month uh, payback on its cap- uh, capital uh, expenditures to get the mine into production, uh, 17 
million dollar capex, which is pretty modest by uh, compared to many projects these days. Well, next week, uh, as I say, I do expect to have the president of American Bonanza on to tell us more about uh, about uh, about his company and the prospects for investors making money in that in that company uh, in what I think is the greatest bull market for gold mining in my lifetime. And I'm a 62 year old man, so that gives you some perspective of what I think um, you know we're headed into. With respect to the precious metals, and you know, I am very bullish on gold and silver and owning the metal itself, not just the shares, although I think, given the environment I see, I think the shares, you can make lots of money in the shares. I think you start out building your portfolio around, around the metals themselves, and Pat Gorman of Resource Consultants is a regular guest on this show. He's not with us today, but I would suggest you check out the resources that Pat provides, uh, his company, Resource Consultants, you can learn more about them by going to buysilvernow.com. That's buysilvernow.com. Or call his number at 480-820-5877. 480-820-5877. We'd also like to call your attention to another website uh, called webeatthestreet.com. Yes, we have a website called webeatthestreet.com because in fact, that's what we have been doing for the better part of a decade. My model portfolio is up 175% since January of 2000, and that compares quite favorably to who I call the queen of Goldman Sachs, and that would be Abby Joseph Cohen. Her favorite investment has been the S&P 500. Well, the S&P 500 is down about, um, you know, it's down about 25% since January of 2000, um, I should mention, though, not to uh, toot my own horn too loudly, that uh, Chen Lin, who is working with us, has, an, has, has had an even more remarkable record. Chen, as we've mentioned on this show many times, has turned $5,400 in his wife's IRA uh, into 637000 starting on January of 2003. That investment had grown to 637000 by the end of last year. Hence, our um, interest in having Chen on this show and working with Chen in a newsletter that he puts out called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Um, gold mining, as I say, has been the linchpin of our success in our uh, model portfolio, and I believe that that is going to continue to be the case. I have never been more bullish on gold mining than I am now, and uh, for one reason, because I think the profit margins are going to keep improving for gold mining. I mean, that's the reason you buy a company is because it can produce profits and, and relative to its current price, you think the earnings will increase. Uh, so we will be talking more about that as the weeks go on. I want to mention this week, um, you know, I have a real problem on this show, and that is that there are so many good people to talk to. So I kind of overbooked this week and didn't realize, uh, didn't keep track of all the people I had on the show. Uh, and so we're kind of short on time. We're not going to have Roger Wiegand or Chen Lin with us, and it kind of works out well because Roger is not feeling well, and Chen is on vacation this week with his family in Florida. Um, but we will have them on next week, and we're also going to have Martin Gross. He's the author of a book called National Suicide. Martin Gross is supposed to be our guest next week. But here's what we have for you this week. We have Sean Broderick. Uh, he's going to be with us in just a minute. And Sean has written a, a very, very interesting and I think very useful book called The Ultimate Sur uh, Sur Suburban Survivalist Guide. Uh, you know, some people want to run off into the into the deserts or some secluded place and 
um, make secure themselves with food and, and um, firearms and so forth. But most of us are not going to be able to do that. We're going to have to live in the cities. We're going to have to live in the neighborhoods we're in. We have our families and our loved ones around us. We can't just run off like hermits into the wilderness. So Sean has provided a wonderful book, a very useful book, that I think, uh, well, we're going to talk to Sean about it very shortly after the break here in a few minutes. I would also like to, while I'm on the topic of uh, survival and preparing for difficult times ahead, remind you again of a guest we had on last week, Susan Zentner. Dr. Zentner uh, has a website called allinonepreparedness.com, allinonepreparedness.com. And Suzanne has done a wonderful job of pulling together, uh, I think, um, sources of food that can last for up to 27 years, dehydrated foods. And Mrs. Taylor and I have tried a beef stroganoff and mashed potatoes here, and they were fabulous, extremely tasty, and you wouldn't even know that they were dehydrated when you um, sit down to eat them. So uh, the nutritional aspect is one thing that Suzanne has worked very hard to pull together. Uh, she's done a tremendous amount of research, and uh, she told us last week that you can actually buy this food for basically the same cost as what you would buy uh, at the supermarket, and you can store them. For, uh, the food is storable for up to 27 years in the ideal conditions, but at least 10, 12, 14 years in less than ideal uh, circumstances. So we're going to be uh, talking to Sean, as I mentioned, and then in the second hour of this uh, weekly show, we're going to be talking about what I think is one of the most important issues that investors have to think about uh, going forward into the future, and that is how this current economic malaise will work itself out. Will it work itself out through a hyperinflationary depression, or will it work itself out through a deflationary depression, similar to what our grandparents went through during the 1930s? And to discuss that this week, we're going to have John Williams, who is uh, who believes that hyperinflation is in our future, and John was a guest on this show before. But we're also going to have Bob Hoy, who takes the other side of the, um, of the argument for the most part. Both of these men are very, um, are very civilized people. Uh, this is a very, in, uh, very emotional discussion when it, when it gets down to hyperinflation and deflation, and there are people on both sides. Some people feel very strongly one side or the other. For me, I'm still trying to figure it out and, and think that either of those events are possible. But which way it, uh, it works out is very important because it has an awful lot to do with how we invest our money. If we go into a hyperinflation, we want to invest in, you know, in certain kinds of things. If we go into a deflation, other things will work out much better. So we've had a number of people on both sides of this discussion on this show uh, in the number, since we started last uh, March of 2009. Today we're going to have two uh, people on the opposite sides talking about this issue in the second hour, starting at uh, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, 1 o'clock uh, Pacific Time. Also in the last uh, segment of this weekly show, I'm going to have uh, Frank Callahan. He's the president of Barkerville Gold Mines. He's going to be on to talk to us about, um, about Barkerville and how that company is doing with its new mining project as it's going into production in uh, British Columbia. Um, before we take a break and talk to Sean Broderick, I just want to remind you uh, that you can obtain a low-cost trial subscription to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, to What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, or to Roger Wiegand's Trader Tracks. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 
4571426 that's 7184571426 or you can go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com or webeatthestreet.com and uh, sign up for these trial subscriptions uh through either of those uh, sources now we oh one more thing before we go to Sean Broderick I take a break and go to Sean uh, we have a listener, David Sason, who has wondered why in the world I sold my Ridex fund just as the U.S. Treasury markets and Treasury rates are starting to rise. Well, I've never been one uh, that's been known for timing. Uh, that's my first answer, David, so I could be wrong on this. But I, as a person who sort of leans on the deflation side and believes that the Fed can buy endless, endless numbers of Treasury bills, and Treasury bonds uh, will probably continue to do that, notwithstanding the posture Mr. Bernanke's taken in recent days. Uh, but even if I'm wrong about that, I do want to see the RYJUX, that's the right X uh, inverse fund, go uh, take out certain resistance levels before. We've seen many, many false starts. I have been thinking for a long time that we should see higher interest rates, and I'm sure we're going to see that sooner rather than uh, at some point in the time anyway. Uh, I'm sure Sean Broderick would have something to say about that. Sean is never short for uh, for discussion on many different topics. Uh, we want to talk to Sean about a number of other items, though, most notably about his book. But we're going to be right back with Sean Broderick, uh, so don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time noon pacific time on the voice america business channel have you been acquiring physical gold silver and coins are you receiving the best price and the best service you can why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country resource consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers several websites and countless stockbrokers and financial planners call them now and find out how they can help you 800-494-4149 
or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have Sean Broderick with me for the second time on this show. Uh, Sean has been a member of the Weiss research team, uh, which he joined in 2000 as an analyst, bringing more than 25 years of experience as a journalist and financial analyst to that position. He is currently writing a daily newsletter, I believe it's daily, uh, Uncommon Wisdom, which you can access via the Internet uh, free of charge, I believe. Uh, Previously, Mr. Broderick was the investment director of the Sovereign Society, the world's leading publisher of offshore asset protection strategies and global investment opportunities, and he is recognized for his expertise on Canadian and Australian investment opportunities. Uh, Sean has been featured on many financial talk shows, including CNBC's Squawk Box, Bloomberg's Market Line, and he is a weekly guest on uh, Market Matters Radio, a uh, contributing columnist to MarketWatch.com and a frequent commentator on HowStreet.com. Mr. Broderick holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Maine, and welcome, Sean, again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, I am exhausted by that list you just read, but uh, yeah, well, sure. <laughs> well, actually, we shortened it down a bit, Sean. Otherwise, <laughs> we would be reading the whole the whole forty five minutes here. We want to get into your book, uh, the Ultimate Suburb- Suburban Survivalist Guide, and yes, the Smart Suburban Survivalist Guide: the smartest money moves for any crisis. Okay, so those are the subtitles that I didn't get around to, to reading in. Um, but before we get to that, I just want you to weigh in. You you heard that we're going to be talking to Bob Hoy and John Williams. Uh, Williams being a, a hyperinflationist and Hoy being a deflationist, uh, both from different perspectives, but both very interesting gentlemen who have, uh, I think, a lot of good points on both sides of the argument. Where do you weigh in on this, uh, on the great inflation deflation debate? Yeah, well, uh, that's uh, that's a discussion that I'd like to hang around and hear because they'll both have really good points, and the fact is they both might be right. We are in 
a deflationary period now. I mean, I don't think anyone can really argue against that. Uh, um, if so, I would like to hear that argument. We, um, but I think that eventually, down the road, um, we could see much higher inflation. And if things get out of hand, then perhaps we could have hyperinflation. Now, um, one thing is that when we have deflation, people are used to to like really thinking that when you have that, the price of gold will go down. But in fact, if you've looked what's happened over the last month, the U.S. dollar has gone higher and the price of gold has also gone higher. Mm-hmm. And um, this is basically because of the problems over in the euro and the closest a parallel that like I can find is like back in 2005, there was also a scare in the euro because France and uh, one of the other countries wouldn't join um, the like Eurozone, so the euro really fell out of favor, and all the money over there moved into the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. and into gold at the same time. So I think we could be seeing that kind of same thing again. That lasted for most of like 2005. After that ended, we saw the U.S. dollar go lower, which is inflationary. I mean, everything's relative. It's just in like how we experience things right now. Things are really. How deflationary over in China they have inflation. I mean, it all depends on like where you are and like what currency you are, right? But like, so I think um, we could see this really last for a while longer. But at the end, we will see the we will see the U.S. dollar slide lower, and then we'll really see gold really head higher. Uh, I expect it would occur sometime next year, probably. So the dollar lower versus other currencies, and also gold. Yes, um, right now it's increasing versus the euro, and uh, certainly they have problems over there, which they have to work out one way, you know. I mean, I'm not sure what they're really going to do. Um, I don't think it's the end of the euro. I think those fears are being overstated, and I think those fears are actually being overstated by the Europeans. They love to see their currency lower yeah. because uh, they need to export in order to grow their economy, and their currency had just gotten too expensive. So that's one reason I don't think we're really seeing a really – um, strong response to the problems in like Greece and stuff because they want to see their currency work lower. You might think that sounds really cynical and really manipulative, but that's kind of the way global governments work anyway, so I'm actually, you know, okay with that. Well, it's uh, interesting you say that because from what I read, I wasn't around during the Great Depression. I'm not quite that old, but we hear about the beggar thy neighbor currency devaluations of the 1930s and, you know, everybody trying to gain or cheat on their neighbors in one way or another by, well, by cheapening their currency and making their goods more competitive that way rather than necessarily producing something, you know, that's more valuable. So maybe that's the same thing that's going on now? I think that's exactly what we're seeing now, yes. And I'm also thinking, Sean, as you're talking here, we're going to have Bob Hoy on the next hour. Hoy has talked about how the senior currency uh, in these major credit uh, credit contraction periods it becomes the strongest currency, and that's you know counter that's counter to what most gold bugs are thinking these days. Most most people who are on the you know who are championing gold are inflationist, and they think that we're going to have uh, the dollar is going to go go you know it's going to find its intrinsic value of zero. And I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying Hoy has this other perspective of historically what's happened is we've seen a little bit what you were just talking about. When Europe, uh, when the confidence is lost in Europe, people go to the dollar. That is the world's leading, still the world's leading reserve currency, bad as it may be. Yes, I mean it has plenty of problems. You're not going to get any argument from me either, and those problems will come back into play, which are some of the things that I actually talk about in my book, 
you know, things that we have to prepare for. But in the shorter term, it should go higher. That doesn't mean that we have to see things like gold really go lower. I expect more of a sideways motion in gold until sometime next year, just because of the way these longer cycles are actually playing out now. Now, some people can, like, look at cycles and say, oh, that's mumbo-jumbo. To a certain extent, you're right. You know, it's all just figures on a page. But these things tend to move. They have moved in the past, and they're a good indication for, like, where things, you know, really could go here. Maybe we could see a gold move down and hit, like, 1,000 again. I think that would be a tremendous buying opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I think the, in fact, I think the um, uh, miners are, like, looking really cheap now. They could get cheaper, but some especially are looking dirt cheap. And those are the things that I think you might want to look at investing in if we had hard times coming, because during the Great Depression, some of the stocks that actually did well were the ones that actually produced hard assets, including miners. Oh, indeed. And again, I'll I'll point to Bob Hoy, who's coming on the next hour. Again, Hoy has gone back and looked at 300 years of credit contractions and noted that in each of those contractions, there have been five of them previous to this one, in each one we've seen the real price of gold rise dramatically. That is what an ounce of gold would buy. That, therefore, the uh, the uh, profit margins increased in gold mining, and we saw that in the 1930s too with Homestake and others. But anyway, I want to. We could talk for hours. I know Sean on uh, macroeconomics, and I'll have to have you come back sometime in the near future to do exactly that. But I want to focus today on the book, on your book, the Ultimate Suburb- Suburban Survivalist Guide. And uh, you mentioned in there, you know, that some hardcore survivalists, uh, you know, they talk about going out as hermits into the wilderness and and building a fortress and a garden, you know, and, and food and having their own, you know, their own food, raising their own food and, and maybe arming themselves to the teeth and, and living like hermits. But you say you're not really you're not really prepared to do that. You have a family. I guess you have a couple of kids. You have a wife. You live in the suburbs. You're not willing to give all that up and don't think you need to. So my question to you is, is it possible, do you think it's possible to successfully prepare for the, you know, sort of calamity that might come about um, and, you know, do that and live in the suburbs? Yes, I mean, that's basically what the whole book is really about, because my boss expects me to show up at the office, so if I move (laughs) to a remote goat farm, you know, he might have a problem with that. So um, basically, I set about to really prepare myself and my family for the worst that could really come our way. And I and I like things like having a garden, making sure that your home is like um, at, that your home is like as secured as as possible. Owning a gun is right as long as you as long as you have the training for it. I mean, mm-hmm. those are things that I really believe in, along with like you know making sure you, you have enough food, enough water, that kind of things. So you should store those, but you, you should also take care of things like your finances. There are in there are investments you can make. I mean, all depending on like what your appetite of like risk is, you know, to actually ride these big waves we have coming, that kind of thing. And you should look at, like, your 401K. So many people don't even know what they have in their 401K. It's actually kind of scary. Also, many people keep no cash at home. They live on plastic. We could have something like a bank holiday where they close the banks for, like, two or three weeks. How are you going to live if that happens? You need to store at least some cash at home. And also, we could have a currency crisis where we see the U.S. dollar rapidly 
uh, devalue. Um, I don't expect that to happen next week, but it is something that could happen further on down the road. So if that happens, you might want to have some hard currencies at home so that, you know, you would have something at least that can just get you through the hard times. Now, I'm not a person who sees this as the end of the world. I mean, we have seen, you know, very major civilizations come and go, and it's never a quick process. I think we could be in for some hard times, and, uh, but at the, on the other side of that, there could be a much better life for like some people, depending on how much they are really willing to adjust their lives and just let go of like a lot of the stuff that's really kind of cutting up their, their lives now and just go for a more simple life, mm-hmm. but one that's ultimately much more... Um, you know, happy. Sure. Less complicated, less stuff, less frivolity, perhaps. We have lots of junk around our, our house, and I know my wife, uh, more than I, is, is very concerned about, you know, buying stuff we don't need, and um, there's something to be said for that, even in good times, I suppose. Yeah, and um, but certainly you should be buying stuff now, <laughs> just just to actually make sure you get through. Um, just to give you a few examples, many people never think about things like, say, Oh, um, having food stored at the house. I mean, yeah. uh, I I live in Florida, and I went through a year where we had three hurricanes in a row. And mm-hmm. after every single hurricane, I would see people lined up at the supermarket. And they just never learned from one storm to the next that maybe they should have stuff stored in their house. And that's your neighbors, I mean, around you. So, it, so if there is a major disaster in your area, there are some people who are going to run out of food very quickly, and they won't know what to do, and many people will panic. So it, um, you should have at least three days' worth of like food actually stored in your house, I would then recommend once you do that, move it up to one week, then like move it up to like one month, and like so on. Make it food you actually eat. Now, you did have, um, you like had something you mentioned earlier in your program when like, um, uh, when I was like on the line about this one lady who, uh, she has, she has this food she sells that's like really yeah. good that'll last for like yeah, maybe do- 15 years. Gender, yeah. Well, uh-huh. Most people, I mean, that may be extremely good stuff, but you don't have to go to that extreme. You can get a one-year supply of food of just the food you normally eat, and therefore there's no shock, there's, there's nothing that'll hurt your system mm-hmm. if you do have to start living off the food you have stored up. Mm-hmm. And if you grow your own garden, then, you know, you can live off your supplies with some nice fresh vegetables, make sure you have water stored, which is really important, and also some way that you can actually purify water would also be a smart thing to do, because if your local water system, you know, just doesn't work one day, which is which actually is increasing in, like, likelihood. That's a scary thought, but many water systems around the country are just old, decrepit, falling apart. Other people are, like, um, having problems with the, like, local aquifer of just just like moving down and down and down. So if you prepare for these things, you'll be much much better prepared for whatever life throws your way. I right. mean, oil disasters, food crises, right. anything like that. Well, we want to get into that. Uh, Sean, in your book you uh, talk about, um, you say the end of the, I think it's part one, is titled The End of the World as We Know It. Could you, you know, you're not looking at, at extreme extreme cases like some people are in fact uh, you know you you made note that in fact you're not uh, probably uh, looking at an extreme enough uh, situation to satisfy some some people 
But uh, what, how do you see the end of the world as we know it? Could you just talk a little bit about what you perceive in the future, what, what could be or what is likely to happen? Well, I mean, there are many things that actually could happen. And, we, and um, you mentioned let me some of them. Just, let me just actually start by saying the two most likely disasters you're ever likely to uh, have in your lifetime would be a flood or fire. Those mm-hmm. are the two things that, you hate to say they're common, but, you know, those are the ones yeah. that, like, actually happen. And if you live in a, say, earthquake-prone area, there's another one you can throw right in there. M- many people in Haiti never thought they'd ever have to deal with an earthquake like that, and the next thing you know, their life's turned upside down. We have many earthquake zones here in the U.S., and uh, if you're in one of them, and uh, if you go to my blog, you can actually check and see on that, then... Um, then, like, you might want to prepare for, like, that kind of thing. Beyond that, I think one will probably face is a um, oil crisis. It seems like we got through the last one, you know, okay, but the fact is if we hadn't had the global recession really crimp the demand from everybody, then it actually would have been much worse. We'd have much higher oil prices right now. And now we're starting to see the emerging markets really increase their demand, not only China, but other emerging markets as well. In fact, most of the growth this year is supposed to come from the emerging markets. We aren't expecting much from the U.S. We're, we're out of the a driver's seat, as it were, you know. And uh, so, but at the same time, supply is really starting to fall off. When they are now drilling oil wells in the Gulf of Mexico that are deep, that that like, are as deep as Mount Everest is high, you know that they've already got the easy stuff. The only stuff they can find now is going to be really, really expensive. And there's more demand for that oil all the time as all these emerging markets around the world, more people, you know, make the transition to using cars and stuff like that. So so if we have an energy crisis, which could be precipitated by anything, let's say there's a nuclear fireball in the Middle East, that's the one everyone always thinks of, from that we could have something like a food crisis because food travels between 1,500 and maybe 2,000 miles to get to your dining room table. Mm -hmm. All the food you have, I mean, that's an average. And so very quickly we could have a food crisis in this country, even though we are the breadbasket of the world. You know, you don't live where the food is grown probably. And uh, so that's yet another thing that could happen. Beyond that, we could have... Sean, I'd like to get into some of those, but I'd like to back up just a second. Uh, Yeah, I'd like to get more into the energy and the food issue in a minute, but just going back to the more likely ones, the ones that, that occur on a more regular basis, the fire and the flood, Issues. Could you? Uh, your book is so much about practical solutions, how to prepare, how to best, you know, in a reasonable way, in, the, in a sensical way, how to prepare. What can people do with respect to fire and flood? What are some of the basic things you suggest in your book? Okay. Well, let's just talk about. Um, let's just talk about a fire. If you have kids, you have to have regular fire drills. Most people don't. Most people don't have a. Most people don't have a fire extinguisher in the kitchen that can handle a grease fire. And, yeah. like, that's, that's just something basic. Most people don't have a fire extinguisher in, like, your master bedroom. If you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a fire in the house, what the heck are you going to do? I mean, mm-hmm. you have to get out of there. So mm-hmm. you have to train your kids how to leave the house in, in like, the um, a dark and how to do it extremely quickly. You have to have fire Excuse me, you have fire, to... Fire drills. Yeah, you, like, have to have the drills. And one thing most people aren't really aware of is that the, like, 
new building materials that are used in newer homes are actually more flammable than the stuff in the old homes. It's just the newer, lighter weight stuff catches on fire more easily. So in a way, the risk of a fire is actually rising. And so that's one of the things you have to really be prepared for. As for floods, people are never prepared for floods. Many floods occur in, in like, you know, areas that haven't had floods for 100 years. We seem to be having these 100-year floods with amazing regularity now. It's, it's like almost scary. That's because we have more people living in the floodplains as places really build up in that court and like that sort of thing. But you can go online, and I have plenty of online resources listed in my book that like can link you to areas that, sh- that actually show you what floods in your area. And you have to have a plan. You have to know the high ground where you live so that if something happens, you can just, you know, walk out of your house or else walk out of your car. Never try and drive through a like, a like flood because you can get swept away like nobody's business. That's why you always see those pictures on TV of like people in a car with water up to their windows. They didn't start out that way, but they just get pushed down the street because that's what floodwaters do. They will push you down to the lowest spot they can find, and then. Everyone thinks, oh, boy, he must have been dumb. He drove in up to his windows. No, it's just that's the way floods work. It's, those are the sneakiest killers. I mean, no one ever expects that out of water. It's, like, supposed to be our friend, but it will sneak up on a, fl- on a flood. Look what happened in Lake New Orleans. I mean, after the storm passed, many people thought they were okay, but it was only then that the water started to rise and rise and rise. I have a story in my book about a guy who went through that, who went through Hurricane or Katrina, and... The stuff that happened to him was unbelievable. I mean, until you interview these people, you, you really don't see these stories on the news. You have no. to get out there, and you have to find out what actually happened there. And what they put on the news, as horrible as it was, was actually the happy case. There was actually much worse stuff actually going on there. So you have to prepare for these things. If you live in an area that floods, you can buy, for example, a like four-person emergency life raft that never needs recharging that you can store in your garage. You might want to consider that if you're in an area that floods. Most of the solutions in my book, though, tend to be lower cost because one of the things about this book is I don't want people to spend too much money. People who get scared tend to throw money at things, and I, and I hate that. So a lot of this book is about saving money and then using that money wisely to actually prepare for all the worst things that can really come your way. Sean, is there a, uh, is there a site that might tell you uh, whether or not you're in a, a danger area for floods? For example, I live in Queens here, and I'm not sure. I mean, we're close to the ocean, but, you know, exactly how high above the ocean I am right now, I'm not sure. Is there some site that you know of, or is there some source sure. that will tell people? Um, it is called floodsmart.gov, and uh, you type in your address, your zip code, and it will tell you the, like, flood risk in your area. There are also other, um, there are like other places on the web. I don't have them uh, right at my fingertips right now. Well, that's right a now, good start. So, um, it, so you could you could put in your zip code, and it can tell you whether or not you're in uh, in danger or not. Or right, right, exactly. Um, but like other places that will actually show you the height above sea level. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like that's like also in my book as well. Your height above sea level in your area, so that you know. In case you hear that the river is cresting at like ten feet, you know, <laughs> yeah. above its banks, you can kind of figure out should you be leaving. But um, in a flood, as in a fire, you have to pay attention to the news. Many people tune out the news now. The news is ugly. The news is horrible. They don't want to hear any of that. But 
you have to stay alert. And I also cover things about working with your neighbors, building a local um, a group, you know, making uh-huh. sure that you're in contact with all your neighbors sure. and they're watching out for you as you watch out for them. That's probably sure. the smartest survival tip you can do for anything mm-hmm. because one person isolated in a house, which he has made into a fortress, is much more likely to be preyed on by the kind of bad people that spring up in any emergency mm-hmm. than an organized neighborhood mm-hmm. that where everybody is watching out for each other. You can organize your neighborhood, which is one thing that I actually cover in the book, and um, just make sure that everybody is like in touch with everybody else. Many Americans now, they don't even know their neighbors. They don't have their yeah. phone numbers. They just wave from like the driveway, and they're not really sure who, who these people are. It's sad, but it's the kind of plugged-in society that we live in mm-hmm. that your friends may live halfway across you know, across the country. So yeah. you, you don't know everyone on your block. Mm-hmm. One thing that I highly recommend is just get out and make friends with your neighbors, host some kind of a block party, for example. Sure. And um, just making those making those uh, connections, you know, mm-hmm. you can really do yourself a whole lot of good because you may have resources around you, people who are plugged into, say, you know, the, um, the like, um, excuse me, people who are plugged into the uh, sheriff's department, that kind of thing, which is what I found out when I Mm -hmm. made friends with my neighbors. (laughs) Because this is all advice that I had to act on. Because, you know, I'm a person who works a lot, and really my wife is the social person in the house, and I don't really know anybody. But, you know, she just pushed me along on this, and we we actually got to meet these people, held some parties, and we found out some fascinating stuff about them, some people with some really useful survival skills. What if, like, you get to a situation where there's, you know, unrest in your town. What are mm-hmm. you going to do? I know the people on my block who, like, have guns. You know, we could actually form, like, a squad if we had to. Mm-hmm. And the, rather than hiding in your house in fear, it helps you be proactive to actually know these things. Sure. No, I, it makes a, lot, makes a lot of sense, and it really is true. Living in Queens, where I live, I you know, you tend not to know your neighbors. You, As you say, our friends sometimes are or across the country someplace. I have a question for you, Sean, with respect to your fire drills. You, you have a couple of children, I guess. Eh? Yes, yes, I do. How, and how old are they? Uh, one, is, uh, one is 10 going on 16, and the other <laughs> is 7 going on terrorist. <laughs> so did you run those, those kids through the fire drill? And what? Yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're, they're actually both smart, um, really good kids. I just yeah. make fun of that, you know. But, yeah. I mean, they, they are both smart, good kids. They actually picked up on it very well. And uh, it, it only took actually two drills to actually make them um, realize what they had to do. You know, they learned very quickly. Some kids may not. You, you, mm-hmm. you might have to do more drills. Yeah. But uh, then, you know, my wife has it on the calendar every six months. We're just going to do another drill because people forget. And you sure. might want to do it more often than that. It's just, yeah. you know, we figure our kids are, like, good to remember for about six months. And you also learn things. You know, one extra spot where you might want to have a fire extinguisher just in case, you know, that's the way you need to get out. And if it's on flames, you want a fire extinguisher there so, like, <laughs> you can actually get get your way out, like, through that area and stuff. Okay. You um, you mentioned uh, also in your book on page seven two crises that will rock your world. And first of all, you you mentioned that you, you prepare for the fire and the flood, which are you know common occurrences through you know whether or not we're in tough times or or, or good times. You know you have these periodical floods and fires and things. But 
you also mentioned that there are two crises that will rock your world. I think what you're talking about there, if I remember right, is probably the energy crisis, which you started yeah. talking about, and food. Now, energy concerns, you know, we've we've seen, what, $150 oil at one point in time? And then, yeah, it was very close saying, to that. If we hadn't gone through a... Uh, you know, through this recession, through this this Lehman, post Lehman Brothers uh, implosion, if you will, we probably would see more problems uh, there. But that cut back this, the demand for oil. I believe in your book, you're really expressing some real concerns about on the supply side for the energy uh, on the energy um, markets. Is that right? Is that your yeah? Major well, um, because most of the major oil fe- oil fields in the world are actually in. Um, they are uh, not like running out of oil, but the amount of oil they can actually get out of them at any particular given time is slowly going down because they've used up the nice, juicy, sweet stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they have to go for the harder-to-reach stuff in each field. Mm-hmm. And as they uh, deplete, um, it just becomes more problematic. What you have to do is you have to look for more oil to replace the older fields. The problem is, I mean, we're getting to the point where we're going to have to replace Saudi Arabia every three years. Now, mm-hmm. where is this actually going to bring us? Where it's going to bring us is higher fuel prices, and some people will be priced out of the market. It'll probably weigh on the global economy again. And uh, so, um, you know, we may be able to keep driving here in the U.S., but other people around the world what will really be priced out of the market. The real danger is if we have an energy crisis. There is something that really precipitates a interruption of the supply into the U.S. We import like one-fourth of the amount of oil we use. And, uh, for example, Mexico, which is one of our major... Which is one of our major oil suppliers. Their oil production is just crashing right now. It is falling off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what are we going to do when they don't export oil anymore? Also, the fact when they get to not being able to export oil anymore, which could be as early as like 2012, that's going to cause major major social unrest down in Mexico because you know they need the income from oil to really pay for their social programs. Mm-hmm. So we could have unrest in Mexico at the same time that we that we have a serious interruption of oil supplies here, and mm-hmm. so then that leads to the food crisis, which we also discussed. Right, because one uh, there's so much energy goes into into uh, producing food. Is that right? Yeah, well, that and also food just travels so far to actually get to your dining room table. Sure. And uh, most people, I mean, they aren't eating from local food supplies. That's one thing we try to do in our house. It's not perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. we certainly shop at, like, a Costco and, like, the big supermarkets, but we also try and just make sure we get some local food as well. And we also grow stuff in, in like, the... Um, a yard, because it's mm-hmm. good to have that food. For one thing, it really helps my nerves. I, I have to say, having Gardening. a garden, you know, it just kind of, just working on a garden is just good, non-thinking work. So, yeah. and and just believe me, if if I can grow a garden, anybody can, because I'm <laughs> terrible at it. But I still get stuff out of it, and uh, it gives me practice for... What if we had a situation further on down the road where we had to grow more of our own food? And I'm not saying you'd have to grow all your own food. I don't really think that would really come into it. But food might get expensive enough that you want to grow as much as possible. You don't want to start gardening then because you won't know anything of what you're doing. It would be handy to start now and just get your skill set together. So if you had to, you know, do more of this, you'd actually be able to. Interestingly enough, I know my wife commented last summer I raised some tomatoes here in the backyard in my Queen's house, and uh, she commented about how much money we saved just with the tomatoes. So I think that's 
That's very interesting. You also mentioned uh, resource nationalism as a uh, as a potential source of, of concern with respect to the uh, energy prices. Would you care to comment on that? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, just look what happened in Venezuela. Everyone's favorite crazy man, right? I mean, um, the, uh, we 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 are just seeing Western oil companies chased out of you know that region of of like of like South America, but it's not just them. I mean, it's around the world. For example, um, China just passed a new regulation uh, that really prohibits um, offshore major energy companies from a- from actively doing wind um, uh, development in China in the like uh, in the like offshore wind stuff. Now, no one's really caring because it's become par for the course. More countries are taking control of their energy future. We're certainly seeing it in places like the Middle East, Africa. I mean, there's a lot of oil coming out of Africa now, and yet those are very volatile countries. If, say, whoever's running that, co- whoever's running that country feels some, some like uh, that he has to impress the people who live there and who may or may not have a say in like whether he holds office he can always nationalize the local energy industry and uh, just show that he's not going to let the oil companies push him around anymore we become easy targets and the unfortunate thing about that is it keeps western expertise out of those areas so they produce less oil and also because of how that whole thing works you know we have less access to whatever oil comes out of there anyway and that is a problem that is really worsening around the globe. You talk about, in Chapter 5 of your book, you talk about investing for the five emergencies, and you name them energy, water, food, climate, and debt. I think we touched on energy, obviously. Uh, I think you mentioned a little bit about water and food. What, care to climb, uh, talk a little bit about climate? Well, sure. I mean, that is the third rail of American politics now, but I'll gladly take on anybody who uh, says we're not having climate change. Many people Mm -hmm. confuse climate with weather. Mm -hmm. And, yes, we're having a nice, cold, wet winter here in the United States. But last year was, like, the second warmest year on record. And uh, all you have to do is look at, like, pictures from space to see what's happening to the ice cap. It's not just global warming. It's climate change. The more energy there is in the atmosphere, the more weird and wild weather gets. You can have stronger winters, you can have stronger summers, and whether people believe it or not, that's actually where money's going to be invested in. And uh, that's one point that I try to make is, I mean, you may not believe in climate change, but the governments around the world do, and they're throwing money at it, so that's actually a good place to invest your money, you know, over the next three, five years, that kind of thing, because there's going to be a lot of money thrown at that sector. Um, I tend to believe in climate change, uh, but you don't have to agree with me. Mm-hmm. But you might want to agree with me that the fact that if the government is throwing money at something, then you might want to stand in the way with your bucket and actually scoop up some of that cash. <laughs> so what are you thinking, solar and uh, wind and that sort of thing or some other Yes, um, well, um, I just put out a like separate report on that. You can invest in solar, you can invest in wind, but as China just showed us, you can't throw your money around wildly. You have to be very specific about what you buy because there are, say, European wind power manufacturers who are now being shut out of China because of what China's really doing there. I tend to focus on ones that have kind of a moat around them. 
I mean, they're in renewable energy, but uh, they have a uniqueness that allows them to actually uh, make money when others don't. For example, if you look for a company that makes the parts used by used by the companies that make wind power, for example, that's a company that will sell to everybody. And that's the kind of company that I look for, one that actually sells to the manufacturers rather than looking to pick out in individual manufacturers are all, you know, really fighting with each other, undercutting each other, that kind of thing. So you have to be smart about how you invest there. You uh, also mentioned debt as a fifth, uh, as a fifth issue, um, investing for the five emergencies, debt being an emergency. Clearly, debt is an emergency for our nation. It's an emergency for many, if not most, Americans these days. It's an emergency for local governments that are broke. I mean, uh, California being probably the, the prime example, but New York State isn't that far behind. Almost all of the states in the United States are broke. Would you care to comment on debt and what you have in mind? And what yeah, I mean, uh, let's talk about California. That's the eighth largest economy in the world. And it just boggles my mind that everyone's upset over Greece when we have California basically broke. This is one of the reasons why you would think the U.S. dollar would be in worse shape than it is, because as you said, I think it's like 45 out of 50 states are in serious financial trouble, and uh, we may get to the point where things like municipal bonds and stuff like that will not be honored. We actually could have that kind of problem. And the real problem it is, not only for investors, but I mean for everybody, is that we have a lot of investment that this country needs. I mean, not making the people, you know, on Wall Street rich, but actually building things like bridges and roads and stuff like that. And that stuff is usually financed by debt. That's how it's done. And and if we don't have access to that money because no one trusts, you know, anyone's bonds anymore, then it's very hard to invest for the future. And we have had times in the past, one time I can think of in particular, the Great Depression, where individual U.S. states have gone bankrupt and have Mm -hmm. not honored their bonds. And uh, that was a terrible time. And the people who got stiffed on that was the big European banks who had loaned them lots of money. Some of the U.S. states finally made good. Some, like, say, Mississippi, only paid off like 40 cents on the dollar, you know. And uh, it just ruined their credit for a long, long time. Now, we had World War II come along. They really pulled everyone's fat out of the fire, though you hate to think of World War doing that. We had a real, we had a real uh, massive, uh, excuse me, we had a real massive a program to, like, spend money and at the same time really suppressed how much money people could spend. So that built up for the end of the war, and then that all released, and that kind of solved that problem. We, we, we don't have that anymore. Now we're entering this crisis where everybody's in debt, not only the governments, you know, which we love to rail about, but also individuals, also corporations. We, we have mountains of debt that are only getting higher. And that's one reason why I believe in inflation down the road, um, because uh, if the economies of the world continue to shrink, then our governments are in really deep trouble. They, because then they won't be able to grow their way out of debt. So what they're probably going to have to do eventually is print enough money and get it out to the people without going to the banks who are just sitting on it and get it out there so that people start spending money again. There's a number of ways they could do it. I mean, uh, so, so it's really hard to say exactly what they'll do. Okay, Sean, well, we're running out. We're, that's what we're just about out of time oh, okay. here now, and I want, uh, I want to tell our listeners that 
your book, uh, The Ultimate Suburban Survivalist Guide, has a lot of practical answers, and we didn't get to all, to very many of them today, but how you can prepare individually for food and energy and that sort of thing. So people should really pick up a copy of this book. And, Sean, can you tell our listeners where they can, where they can buy the, your book? Sure. Um, we have a website called ultimatesuburbansurvivalist.com. You can look at it there. You can look at it on, like, Amazon. A dot com where some people have said some very nice things, and in case anybody's listening to the show, I don't have another way to talk to you, so I just want to say thanks very much for the nice things you say about my book. And um, if people are in a really, if like they are in a life where they don't have time to really do anything, and like they say, well, I'm not going to buy the book because I don't have time to prepare anyway. At the end of each chapter is a small summary that is called The Least You Can Do, which is quite literally the least you can do about any of these areas of your life where you should be prepared. At least pick it up in the bookstore and look at those and make sure you have the basics covered. Because when a crisis comes, you know, you will not have time. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. Time is the one luxury we have now, and you won't have it in the future when the stuff hits the fan. Exactly right. And, uh, Sean, also tell people how they can keep up with your work on a regular basis. Well, um, I do write a lot, and as you might be able to tell, I'm quite verbose. So you can check me out every day at UncommonWisdomDaily.com. There I write the uh, Friday column. I have a Tuesday video. Uh, My video today was about... Um, what was it about? Oh, it was about gold on the dollar. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I saw it actually, Sean. Videos, it's excellent, so I folks. I hope you'll check Sean and out. Also, I more. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Sean. Right every day, so you can check that out as well. Okay, well, we'll look to have you on again sometime, and we can talk more about the economy at that point in time. But uh, thanks again for coming on, folks. Don't go away. We're going to have next coming up, John Williams and Bob Hoy. They'll be talking to us about uh, the fascinating discussion, one that's on everybody's minds these days, and that is inflation or deflation. We'll be right back with a very fascinating discussion with these two gentlemen. it's up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. 
we hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for the, to the second hour of this show for making this show financially possible. Uh, those uh, companies are Barkerville Gold Mines, Crocodile Gold Corp, Resource Consultants, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold Corp, Silvercrest Mines, Sand Gold, and Hawthorne Gold Corp. And by the way, uh, I want to just mention that we're talking to Frank Callahan. He's the president of Barkerville Gold Mines. Uh, at about a quarter till the hour, the, the last 15 minutes of this show, we'll have Frank on with us to explain to us. Uh, let us know how he's doing and how his company is doing as they're going into production in British Columbia. Well, in recent years when it became obvious to me that our economy is in deep trouble, the biggest single issue I thought that investors needed to keep their eyes on is how this pathology, this economic pathology, will play itself out. Will it be by way of a deflationary depression like our grandparents went through during the 1930s, or will we see a hyperinflationary Depression, uh, like maybe the Weimar Republic had, or many other countries have had, and actually in recent times are still having in Zimbabwe. We think of Zimbabwe at the present time. So 
So we've had quite a few folks on this show on both sides of this uh, this debate. Uh, we had, for example, on the deflation side, we've had Robert Prechter uh, and Dr. Robert McHugh, both Elliott Wave proponents, uh, students of Elliott Wave, Ian Gordon, Miss Shedlock, and, and Bob Hoy, I would say, uh, also on the deflation side. On the inflation side, we've had the likes of William Baker, Rob Kirby, James Turk, Mark Faber, uh, presidential candidate Ron Paul's been with us, and he let it know, be known that he believes that's where we'll end up, and John Williams. And we have had a, a number of folks also on this show who say, well, like Sean Broderick said a little while ago, he thinks we're heading into a deflationary period of time, and then we will uh, go in the opposite direction down the road. So. Who knows for sure? I can tell you that I have not made up my mind for sure. I'm not quite sure. I know which way we're heading and, and when, um, uh, though I have my leanings for sure. Those of you who listen to the show on a regular basis are aware of that. But it's very important because it has everything to do with how we invest our money, how we should invest our money. If we're going into a deflationary environment, then clearly cash is not a bad thing. Gold will be very good, I think. And Gold share is probably the best environment as a disinflation or a deflationary environment for gold mining companies. If, on the other hand, we're going into a hyperinflationary environment, then then maybe it makes sense to have some mortgage. Maybe it makes sense to borrow some money even and go into debt to a certain extent. Um, it, it, we might want to hold assets that we wouldn't necessarily want to hold in a deflationary environment. So revolving this question of hyperinflation or a deflationary depression is a big deal to me, and I know it is to many folks who think seriously about investing their money. So to try to help us figure out which way we are going to tilt, uh, we have today with us, and I'm very honored to have both John Williams, uh, who will presumably discuss things on the inflationary side, and Bob Hoy, who I believe will tell us that I uh, may not agree with John on everything and probably it leans more on the deflationary side of, of the issue. We've had both of these gentlemen with us before, and I'm really, really glad that both of you could come. Welcome, both of you, John and Bob, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, good to be with you. Um, because time is so short, um, I just want to sort of get into, let's just start right off by uh, seeing what's your definition of inflation and deflation? And the Austrian school really argues that it's simply a matter of money supply. If we have a rising money supply, it's inflation. If we have a decreasing money supply, it's deflation. John, can you tell me what your definition of inflation and deflation is? And then I'll ask Bob the same question. Well, I, I don't generally have too much of a problem with the Austrian school, although it doesn't necessarily always reflect the real world nor all the definitions on money supply necessarily adequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now we've got falling in, uh, uh, falling M3, as I measure it, in, uh, in the U.S., yet I'm going to be, be arguing for inflation and uh, that you need to look at a, a broader picture of uh, money supply when you have a, current, a currency that's also the world's reserve currency. Mm-hmm. My definition of inflation, very simply in one terms of what I'm talking about, when I talk about inflation, is a year-to-year change in prices for consumer goods and services, as opposed to inflation or deflation in assets. Um, an asset deflation, sharp economic contraction, are not inconsistent with positive inflation. Okay. And I will expand upon that further. One yeah, more. sure. Uh, Bob, what, what do you say about uh, your definition of inflation and deflation? Well, this is kind of the historian in me speaking, and uh-huh. 
years ago there was the classic definition of inflation was an inordinate expansion of credit. And mm -hmm. from that, it's easy to go to a classic definition of deflation, which is an inordinate contraction of credit. One follows the other. And uh, I'm content to stay with that because you've had inflation erupt in different items at different times. 1970s, it was inflation and consumer price index, and it got up to, what, 15% or something like that. And then at another time in the 80s, you had uh, an inflation in gold up to 1980, gold and, and silver and crude oil. And then you had a deflation of those. So what one wants to look at are recurring patterns in history. And these are defined, of course, by great massive credit expansions, of which we have been on an extraordinary one, and the uh, deflation of credit that started in 2007 has been, according to many uh, mainstream economists, quite extraordinary, perhaps the worst since the 1930s, which then tells us something else as well. So I think what we're seeing here is a massive attempt by a failing intellectual effort called interventionist economist economics to keep the bubble going and to, and in fact, perhaps even reignite another bubble. And I think it's failing. And the failure is simple, is that it's the old saying about the Federal Reserve trying to push a, push a rope. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't work. So the Fed relies upon eager borrowers to get its portion of the credit expansion out. But if the rest of the street and the private sector is generally suffering a credit contraction, it's going to, at some point, if enough asset prices are falling at the same time, then the Fed will be unable to depreciate the currency. So this is what we'll rest with, and that's the first uh, start of my point of, point of view. Okay. Um, John, do we – so, John, if I understand you properly, what you're suggesting is that – so your definition is really that of prices. So – you could uh, have, I, I, um, I, I look at it from a very practical standpoint, okay. as the average person would view it, are prices rising or falling. What Bob is saying, I really can't argue with. You may find that the two of us are much closer in agreement here than, uh, than, than, than you thought. I suspect that will be the case. Uh, <clears throat> I know Bob's a student of the uh, cycles, and certainly what we're seeing in the current credit cycle is... is, is uh, uh, a collapse of uh, something that uh, really should never have taken place. Uh, what we're going through right now is a structural contraction, uh, and there, there's a the structural part of it is that the consumer, uh, for decades now, has been unable to stay ahead of inflation. That's been largely due to the loss of uh, higher-paying jobs offshore. Mm -hmm. When you don't have growth in income, net of inflation is measured by consumer prices. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, the economy can't uh, enjoy sustained positive growth net of inflation because consumption drives uh, the, the, the economy. That's fairly simple. You can, you can buy time by expanding debt, and that's what Greenspan did uh, when, when he knew that there was no way the economy was going to continue to grow, grow the way it had in the decades before. He did everything he could uh, to uh, in, encourage uh, de debt expansion. 
and uh, to build, uh, to lever upon, uh, upon lever to the extent that we had one of the greatest, if not the greatest, bubble in history. And indeed now, as the uh, credit system has started to uh, collapse, or the extension of credit has started to collapse, you have the consumers in a circumstance where they have inadequate income, uh, net of inflation, uh, to sustain the economy, and they don't have the ability to uh, expand debt that they did in recent years, so there's just no way you're going to have an easy way uh, out of this uh, out of this downturn. It does not, however, mean that we're going to have a price deflation. Uh, I can see an asset deflation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, John. You can see an asset deflation, meaning stocks, stocks and uh, uh, housing prices and things like that, yep. but not necessarily uh, consumer prices. The guy's got to go fill a tank of gas and, and, and pay for that out of his paycheck. Uh, we'll still be seeing higher prices. And, and what has happened here, what, what the Fed did, what uh, the Treasury did, and by the Fed I mean Bernanke, um, as the current crisis broke, uh, a, a, a deliberate decision was made to try to, to attempt to keep the banking system afloat and solvent and to prevent um, a great deflationary um, economy, as it was seen in the Great Depression. The Great Depression, uh, you dropped about 30% in terms of overall uh, consumer prices over several years. Um, the efforts of the government so far have succeeded in uh, keeping uh, the, uh, uh, preventing the collapse of deposits, uh, which took place in the 30s and caused the money supply to contract it help to drive inflation lower, um, and uh, they basically prevented deflation. We had a very brief period of time here where year-over-year year CPI went down a little, little over 2% due to the wild gyration and, and uh, oil prices, but that's generally behind us now. But the okay, so, they've taken... So- so, John, I would, I would uh, then have to ask you, do you then not agree with Bob that the attempts to to overcome this massive uh, deflationary pressure is working to an extent? Well, they, they, it, it is, to, to avoid a massive deflation, it is working. Uh, I contend that they're going to succeed in debasing the dollar, which is Mr. Bernanke's term, um, in, in terms of how the Fed can create inflation. And uh, uh, that, in, in, in fact, uh, uh, what lies ahead will leave them with few options, but to uh, do it well beyond what would be considered prudent by anyone. And this is a circumstance that um, goes back a number of years, but what's happening right now uh, is that we're set for a hyperinflation within the next five years. It could actually break as early as, as this year. Before the current crisis, um, that hyperinflation uh, could have been as far off as the end of this uh, current decade. Uh, if you look at uh, generally accepted accounting principle, uh, accounting for the federal government, um, in 2008 the deficit was uh, 5.1 trillion. That includes uh, net present value, year-to-year change in the net present value of the unfunded liabilities for Social Security, Medicare, and such. Uh, probably close to 9 trillion this year. Mm. Uh, just ended. They haven't published the numbers yet. They're going to do that at the end of this week. But those <clears throat> deficits are beyond containment. Uh, they could tax everyone uh, to 100 percent of their income, take all corporate profits. They could not; they'd still be in a deficit. They could cut 
cut all government spending except Social Security and Medicare, and they'd still be uh, in deficit. And the, uh, I mean, if there were to be a solution, it's a, it's a horrendous slashing of Social Security and Medicare that uh, I don't feel there's any uh, political um, uh, base in Washington that's willing, willing to pursue it. The end result being that <clears throat> down the road, as with most countries that uh, bankrupt themselves, uh, instead of defaulting on debt, um, they just uh, meet, the sh- meet the shortfall in revenues by printing money. Um, in this case, the Fed would be monetizing treasury debt. I think you're going to see a lot of that happening this year, mm-hmm. um, which boosts the money supply and, and puts you into a traditional monetary-based inflation, hyperinflation. Okay, uh, yeah. Bob um, would would have to ask you then. Uh, John thinks that we're going to continue to pay higher prices for gasoline, even if we have asset price. Uh, I mean, even if we have asset price deflation. Do you agree with that? No, I don't see that. What one should do is review the activities of the Fed since they opened the door in January 1914, and essentially their job has been to create credit out of thin air. And they've been very good at that, but they need a business cycle in order to do that. And one of the things that academic economists have been unkind with, such as Bernanke, is to claim that the Federal Reserve made no attempt to inflate following the 1929 disaster. But if you read the newspapers rather than the textbooks, you'll find that in the summer of 1929, the Fed was getting prepared for a contraction, that last increase in the discount rate from 5 to 6% in August of 1929 was intended to kind of tighten up money a little to Wall Street, but they also took measures to ease money to Main Street. Then in the, the hiatus of the crash, the New York Fed, which was huge then as it is now, uh, stepped into the, uh, the fray and opened the discount window and it exceeded its lending authority by a factor of six times. In the early part of 1930, the Fed, this was, of course, after the crash had uh, ended, and you're on a very good rebound, thinking uh, that the economy was going to soon come back. The Fed announced that they had met the crash in the classic fashion by discounting liberally. So you take the newspaper thread even a little further, and in uh, 1932, uh, the economist, oh, sorry, Barron's, uh, in, a, in an editorial, pointed out that every anti-deflationary measure taken by the Fed in uh, buying bonds out of the market to inflate uh, credit was seen not to be working because uh, outside of that, lower-grade corporate bonds, as they, as the Barron said, were sucked into the vortex of deflation. So. I would say that there was a massive attempt made by the authorities in the early 1930s to inflate, and it was prevented by, guess what, falling asset prices. So mm-hmm. this is uh, important to get across. The other part of history I can give is from my own side, where in 1963 I started with uh, then Canada's largest bond underwriter, and with absolutely no background in business and economics. I, hell, I'd took, taken a degree in geophysics. And then, uh, and I think it was about 1965, when the rate of inflation was picking up to 2%. And I remember talking to one of the vice presidents in charge of bonds, and I said, well, 
isn't there some concern that this would trim the amount you get out of real out of the coupon, and then that would affect the principle of a bond? And the VP of Finance said, uh, yes, that's true, but keep in mind that inflation is something that only afflicts lesser countries found in Europe or South America. <laughs> and the United States and Canada, has, they would never become, there's too much integrity and it would never become corrupt. So at that point, pension funds were full of long-term bonds and we went into the, uh, the worst bear market for bond prices in history. So then more recently, in the last decade, uh, the institutions have been working manfully to get uh, the institutions, the pension funds, loaded up in commodities. Why? Because the corruption of central banking and currency depreciation is going to go on forever. Mm. So this suggests that the, the notion of the corruption of central banking is in the market. And everybody's fully positioned for that. <laughs> and, of course, the way that every, the most aggressive investors get positioned is to get leveraged. It. So every time you're leveraged, you end up owing dollars. So it's, a, it's the same old thing that uh, every time you have a, def, uh, a hit in the, in the asset prices, then they're, they're forced to cover in dollars. So I think it's going to be uh, the biggest short squeeze in history is the short position in U.S. dollars. And as I say... The Fed will not willingly change its uh, culture. This Enough is... asset prices going down, and it'll change them. They won't be able to do it. So I'm sticking with it. This is a, a very interesting, John. I, I have to ask you then. Uh, do you first of all do you agree with Bob's interpretation of history that in fact the Fed was very aggressively fighting the the depression, uh, the deflation back in the 1930s with aggressive monetary means? Or do you think it just wasn't uh, sufficient enough, and that we are going to, you know, just just do it right this time and get more of it done uh, to to be able to overcome the deflation? Well, back in the back in the thirties, <clears throat> uh, consumer prices uh, held pretty much into end of nineteen thirty, um, and th- then you started to see a fall off of the money supply. <clears throat> which largely was a uh, result of uh, banking system problems, failure of banks, actual loss of deposits. I mean, by the time you get to uh, uh, 33, uh, you had the uh, uh, money supply was, uh, or mid-32, coming in at 33, was, it was down 15% year over year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the CPI was down three years in a row there, about 10% year over year. Mm-hmm. That was beyond the, uh, the ability of the Fed to contain. They were doing everything they could. Uh, what was done that was different and, and, and what where the system had a certain uh, throttle on it was uh, the gold standard. And uh, after Roosevelt uh, abandoned that domestically in uh, '33 confiscated the uh, privately held gold, and then in early 34 uh, depre- depreciated the dollar against gold. And, in fact, you find the dollar in this time frame is also dropping against uh, uh, Swiss franc and the British, uh, the, the British pound. All of a sudden, uh, inflation comes back, and uh, inflation generally was a de- deflation was not much of a problem after that. It was a brief spurt in 
of the downspurt in 38-39, but uh, I'll, I'll contend that the the uh, collapse in the in, in uh, consumer prices seen in the 30s was largely due to the failure of the banks and loss of uh, loss of depositor mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. and that, that you know if the system had been different at that time, <coughs> they could have. Uh, they, they probably could have salvaged it, and uh, what changes were made, including uh, the FDIC and the government stepping in to basically guarantee all deposits during the latest crisis, uh, were lessons learned from that period. Mm-hmm. We should mm-hmm. not have gotten into what we saw uh, over the last couple of years. I'm not in any way justifying it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, what they wanted to do was to prevent a collapse of the banking system collapse of the depository institutions, um, and, and a severe contraction in the money supply uh, that would have given you, given you the 1930s-style Great Depression. We're now operating well off the gold standard. Mr. Roosevelt put us on a, on, uh, started us on the debt standard. And, uh, he's had very uh, uh, avid followers ever since who've increasingly, uh, uh, with all sorts of instruments, uh, uh, Built leverage upon leverage, up to a point where I'll contend uh, uh, where, where Roosevelt had reached the, the limits of what could be done in the gold on the gold standard, uh, that we reached the limits of what could be done on the, on the debt standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. well, I, I the, the point that's been mind. taken there so far, the commitments are are, are yeah. so great that there's no way they can be uh, sustained. And the and the Fed the Fed can get that money supply. Uh, growing if they if, if 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 they really want to, um, and I don't think they're going to have much uh, uh, choice in that because we're seeing circumstances now that would tend to mandate a shift in policy. Okay, let me ask Bob. Uh, Bob, do you, what do you think about uh, John's argument that the gold standard got in the way of a of a more aggressive uh, stimulus during the 1930s? Well, the Fed wasn't on a, the U.S. wasn't on a gold standard then. It was the gold exchange standard, which allowed all kinds of cheating. So, But often in these debates, both sides will discuss 1929 and the early 30s. And uh, I would suggest that there's a good example of uh, a bubble and followed by severe deflation with the 1873 bubble. Mm-hmm. In the height of that bubble, the leading New York newspaper, the Herald, editorialized that... Uh, the U.S. was fine, uh, everything would be all right, because they had the Treasury system, and they did not have a central bank. And at that time, the Bank of England was convertible into gold, so with their sterling. So then they editorialized that this gave immense powers to the Treasury system, uh, and they, they essentially did the same thing. They bought bonds out of the market and injected cash into the system and that this would prevent anything bad from happening. And they had also had a very high regard for the ability of the Treasury of the Secretary at that time. So that was a classic example of uh, the, insti- uh, the establishment celebrating whatever agency was around at the height of a financial mania. And then over it went. And uh, all of the wonders of being on a fiat money system and uh, a powerful Treasury uh, was of no avail. It it went into uh, uh, the typical twenty twenty five year contraction. So mm-hmm. um, 
I can go back in time further that uh, you have, uh, when you have one of these great big bubbles, and it includes both tangible and financial assets, the unwinding of it takes decades. Um, I could also even get a little bigger perspective on this, is that in 2,000 years, there fortunately has only been three periods of rampant price inflation in the senior currency and in the senior economy. And that was the third century in Rome. Prices went up by a multiple of 40 times, and then the whole thing blew apart. Uh, the public refused uh, authoritarian government. Then the next one was in the 1500s, and the same thing, uh, eventually uh, it burned itself out. And then we've had the one that's been going for about 100 years now. And, and I would uh, define that as a hyperinflation, a century of it, in the senior currency, in the senior economy. And then you had massive political change that took a look at every institution and... Uh, changed it and modified it, but the main thing was you had a tremendous reformation from big government to uh, a politics uh, more designed for the individual. So the, the common thing to each of those great hyperinflation was that they ran for 100 years, and then the public had a massive change. So here, where the inflationists are considering that the U.S. dollar is going to go to zero, which would be a massive repudiation of the dollar, I would suggest that there were in a political change whereby the idiots running the central bank are going to be repudiated. <laughs> and the culture of, of interventionist economics will be repudiated. And, and all of central planning will be. We are in extremely exciting times. And I, I know. I begin each day looking at the marks and say, "This, you know, this is a fun game to watch, and it's fine if you can protect yourself. It's even better if you can trade." But uh, I think uh, this is going to be massive political change, there where the public will force the government to go back to a gold standard. Interesting. Hey, big times. Very, very interesting. Now, John, um, I think uh, you know, Bob just mentioned hyperinflation and his definition. I'd like to get your definition of hyperinflation. Could you tell our listeners? Well, I, I don't know if he had currency other than some that are currently surviving that hasn't uh, usually ended in, in, in hyperinflation. Uh, hyperinflation is a very, very rapid pace of inflation. Uh, I use a, a, a very crude definition. Is it the uh, because there are so many out there? You know, a couple of thousand percent or over fifty percent. Different numbers are thrown out. I'm looking at something generally much higher than that. Where uh, if you take the uh, uh, highest denomination note before the high, hyperinflation hits, in this case, which would be the hundred dollar bill, when that becomes worth more as functional toilet paper than as currency, you have a hyperinflation. I'm talking the Weimar Republic. Uh, hyperinflation, where the currency becomes becomes virtually worthless. Ouch! Now you have, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Bob's cited a number of interesting points in history. Uh, we have now a situation in the United States where let's just take the 
take the Great Depression cycle where we start to go off the gold standard with Roosevelt. Nixon uh, closes a gold window in 70. Since 1970, uh, we've been in uh, we, we, we've been uh, completely uh, uh, feared. Now, if we were going through this 30 years ago, I com- completely agree with Bob that the public would uh, overturn the system and push for it to be corrected as it should have been done many, many decades before. But uh, we've gone beyond the point uh, where it can be easily contained. I mean, it's sort of like the crisis uh, uh, two years ago, the uh, systems on on the brink of a collapse of the banking system. Do you step in and save it or do you let it collapse? Well, given that the Fed's primary function in life is uh, to support the banking system, um, the, the obvious answer there was support the banking system. We're now in a situation with the U.S. government that the politicians uh, have already uh, are spending and have committed to spend uh, funds that cannot ever be be covered in the normal course of uh, business. The federal government can never raise enough taxes. Uh, So in order to change the system, to to get it under a gold standard, which and I I believe that demand is going to come, but it's not going to work until the uh, fiscal conditions are brought under, under control, um, and, until the government's uh, uh, fiscal house is in order, until the world, uh, again, can see the uh, uh, dollar as the uh, great currency that it once was. Keep in mind, back in the, the days of uh, uh, the, the, the Great Depression, we, we had a trade surplus. We didn't have a, a, a tremendous uh, government uh, uh, deficit generally it was it was in surplus. Uh, <clears throat> now we have a tremendous uh, annual uh, trade deficit. We have uh, a def- uh, budget deficits that, uh, by themselves, are uh, you know could right now the current the current number for 2009 uh, will be more than half of uh, uh, annual GDP. Mm. Uh, if you t- add together all the, the the total the total debt that the government's taken on and the obligations it is committed to, in terms of spending, and that present value, um, that's assuming that present value, the unfunded liabilities, assuming the future value of money there and the cost of what lies ahead, uh, we're looking at uh, obligations of roughly seventy five trillion dollars, which is uh, five times the level level of GDP. There's no no way that can possibly um, be paid off in the existing system. Um, so, John, what you're suggesting then is that the only way that that's going to be funded is through printing press money, and then how do they get it out to the? Is it just transfer payments to the masses? Is that what you standard. see coming down the pike? We'll go. I just finished this one point. Sure. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> it will be very painfully as a result of the hyperinflation that the public will be demanding uh, the gold standard and, the, and again, uh, putting the, the fiscal house in order. Usually people don't tend to, tend to respond much until they uh, uh, suffer financial pain, and uh, we're beginning to see that now. But the house has to be uh, in, in proper shape before you can uh, give it a new foundation. Yeah, there's... I could make a yeah. Go ahead, point. Bob. What yeah. respond to that? that uh, uh, in, in other words, John is Germany, John is arguing that we have to see yeah. that you know, people become uncomfortable. Their currency becomes worthless. They're going to revolt. They're going to demand a a strong you know a, a real dollar, yeah. a dollar backed by gold. 
But you see it working the other way, that we're going yeah. to back into the gold standard through a deflationary environment. Yeah. And I guess understanding John's point of view is that if the dollar is actually gaining more value, then would there be a need to go to gold to a gold standard then? Well, yeah, the, uh, it's, uh, the, the discipline is required. But I could point out that in the Weimar inflation and going into that, Germany, effectively, although an important country, had no credit markets. So then they were then right printing, uh, the printing presses going and kept it going. Leading economists in Germany in 1922 took and deflated the money to growth and money supply and said that it's not growing fast enough. So when you're in a mania, even economists go crazy. Mm. But And then they finally decided that they had to stop it. So they had the political will to stop it. But in the case of the United States, it's the world's supreme credit market. And they will have to, the bond vigilantes will get them. As a matter of fact, I think there's going to be the next big disaster. It has already started now, and it's in sovereign debt. There's nothing new there. And then also corporate debt will soon take another leg down. And I think eventually the bond revulsion will get so bad that it will bring the prices down for you at long treasuries and interest rates soaring, uh, it's going to be felt all around, and then that will put the reaction into the political side and just say stop stop the presses, so to speak. But uh, I think the credit markets in the U.S. will do the service in ending this insane experiment in managing the interest rates and in managing the currency, the whole thing. I think it's going to blow itself out. So, so, Bob, do you think we've can, seen the highs the in the Treasury market? Do you think the long, the long U.S. Treasury is, uh, you know, is is, in a, is starting a bear market now, a long secular bear market? I think. Well, I wouldn't say a long secular bear market. I'd say that it's it's in a, a decline since 142, and is now around 116 on the long, on the bond future. And a, a, a brief crisis will perhaps change the whole game, uh, and, a, and a severe crisis in in long uh, U.S. Uh, treasuries. But then the idea of uh, the, the prospect of a huge deficit and debt load uh, is not new either. Uh, you've got examples uh, uh, a couple hundred years ago where some diligent researcher sat down and figured the debt, figured the thickness of the coinage of the day, and said it, it would stack up to, you know, so high. Uh, We've seen that uh, a while ago where you said somebody took the work in $1,000 bills and stacked them up and it would rise to, who knows, the height of the Empire State Building. So these ex- conditions of excessive debt by government have existed before, and they have then eventually been cleaned up in uh, the usual post-bubble uh, credit contraction. So, Bob... Um how are how is our government going to pay for the obligations? I mean, we have the aging population, we have Social Security and Medicare. That is, you know, as John points out, is even if we taxed we're taxed 100 percent of our income, it wouldn't be enough. What's going to give here? Is the government It'll going to renege on its promise? All over we... the place. What's that? Now the bond prices are going to the corporate definitely sovereign now. And here's here's the classic pattern: the Economist the headlines in 1873 about the Spanish debt problem. Now it's Greece, including Spain, but here, G- 
June the 7th, 1873, the approaching Spanish repudiation. July 5th, Spain is making arrangements for the payment of the current coupon. August 2nd, Spanish interest will not be paid. August 30th, anarchy in Spain. Hmm. Well, this is what's going to happen. It's going to grind right down. Uh, in Greece now, the trade unions are trying to resist any form of cutting things back, and I'm sure that they existed before. So this is going to be a massive change in culture on the side of the guys who have been had the audacity and ego to think that they could manage an economy. And then it's also going to be a massive change on the side who is expected to support the whole thing. So, yeah, all bond prices are probably going to take a massive haircut. And, uh, they, and in, I hate to use Austrian terms, but you have to get all prices down to the level where your ordinary businessman sees value there and starts to do business again. And as usual with those things, the faster it happens, the better. So, uh, John, uh, I, I have to ask you, we only have about three or four minutes left, so I've got to ask yep. John. Uh, John, wh- where do you think? Do you think the, the Treasury markets are about ready to tank, the U.S. Treasury? Uh, well, they're they're going to tank. Uh, I, I can't give you the exact timing, but uh, putting money in uh, long, long treasuries uh, about the last place I'd, I'd, I'd look to put it. Uh, I agree with uh, uh, much of what Bob is saying. I mean, that we're in for cultural shocks here. Uh, but the uh, what you have to keep in mind, best bet I can give you at the moment, is that the uh, U.S. economy in the year ahead is, is going to continue in contraction. We're going to see a worse economy now than commonly is expected. All the projections on the uh, budget deficits, uh, treasury funding, state fundings, uh, all those are are based on presumptions of positive economic growth in 2010. So the fundings are going to be a lot worse than expected. Looking at record fundings as it is, you're also the government's probably going to have to bail out California. I'm talking about federal government. Uh, you're going to see increased expenditures as well as reduced revenues. <clears throat> Treasury's already having funding problems. Indeed, I think the market's going to rebel. I'd also contend that you're probably going to see increased dumping of treasuries currently held by uh, uh, investors uh, both inside and outside the United States. Uh, The the, the effect there is indeed to spike interest rates. Uh, The funding needs are so great that they're draining liquidity from the system. And and here you have our Fed now that uh, uh, has no constraints on it whatsoever, uh, that I'll contend um, is going to step in as a buyer of last resort and keep those markets liquid, keep buying up the treasuries, and in doing so, they actually are, are printing the money. Mm-hmm. If the if the uh, if the treasury instead of uh, borrowing the funds from the public, where the funds are brought in uh, from the public and then sent back out as checks to the public, uh, that has uh, nil effect on the, on the money supply. But if the, if the if the uh, Federal Reserve's providing the funds. That's a straight addition to the money supply, and it goes right out to the people that spend it. That's where you're going to start to see some pickup in the in the uh, uh, traditional money money measures. And uh, beyond that, uh, in reaction to this, it's a terribly deteriorating circumstance, and general revulsion by people who are holding dollars around the world will be increased dumping of the U.S. dollar, and it is a selling pressure on the dollar. 
that will has already we, we've already seen some fluctuations in inflation from because a weakening dollar will spike uh, items such as a, a dollar denominated oil, uh, which in turn creates inflation for us here and with energy related products. But it's not a demand driven uh, inflation. That's not driven by strong uh, economic activity. It's it's being uh, driven by monetary distortions. Right. So, John, as I understand, your argument for hyperinflation essentially is a dollar that's going to collapse, and therefore imported goods will become extremely expensive. The government will have to print more and more money to pay for its services, whereas, Bob, you believe that the dollar, as the world's reserve currency, uh, using history, will, will contract, will become stronger vis-a-vis other currencies, I think uh, is is that in a nutshell yeah, the argument one, that both of you provide? One of the things you can say about the post bubble contraction is that a, a lot of damage was done in the senior currency during the bubbles, and uh, because asset prices were bid up all over the place relative to then uh, sterling, lately dollars, and so the rule of thumb that we came up with is that. In a post-bubble contraction, the senior currency eventually becomes strong most of the time against most currencies and most other commodities for most of the time. And you still have a business cycle, three to four years coming and going. And uh, more recently, you had a pattern in copper, gave a very big high, uh, the likes of which you've only seen a few in the last 30 years or so. So the it looks like we've had a big rebound out of a a worse crash than than followed 1929, and that the rebound is about running is running out of energy. And when you get the next wave of declining asset prices, it is going to really uh, curb the ability of the Fed to depreciate the dollar. Well, this is really interesting. I wish we had more time. We've got 30 seconds. The, uh, my engineer is telling me here. John, would you care to just make a, a closing comment uh, with regard to what Bob just said, or or make your no, case I, I, for hyperinflation? Very, very, very simply, the, uh, there's been a major effort afoot to uh, change the dollar's uh, status as, as uh, the reserve currency. Um, I, I think that movement's going to accelerate in the, in the year ahead. Okay, well, that would be a, that would be a, a big difference. Then, obviously, if that changes, then Bob, would you see possibly some changes? I mean, is it that easy? Can can the dollar no, no longer be be the world's reserve currency? And if so, where where might we you, go to? You have so many transactions done in in dollars. Uh, London-based metal prices, London Metal Exchange, uh, crude oil. Uh, there's just so much transacted in dollars that it would. A mighty momentum change to change that, mm-hmm. and I think credit markets are moving faster than one can change to another uh, another senior currency. Okay, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Both of you guys have have great arguments on both sides of this discussion, and uh, I think you've both done a great service to our listeners. I want to thank both of you, especially you, John, struggling with that cold you have. I'm sorry about that. I'm I'm grateful to you for coming on in spite of it. Um, you know, where can um, let's just let people know where they can learn more about Bob, your website, where people can go to. It's, yep, institutionaladvisors.com. And or John, I hate to say it, just Google my name, Bob Hoy. B-O-B-H-O-Y-E. Bob Hoy, yeah, H O Y E. Yeah, and John, your your website where people website is shadowstats.com. Shadowstats.com. And I listen, I read uh, the work of both of these gentlemen on a regular basis. Can't miss. Their work, it's very, very important to me uh, to keep in tune with their arguments on both sides of this 
but they're very much in agreement more than we would uh, than we would think on the surface but definitely it's just a slightly different view but you know it makes all the difference in the world I think both gentlemen didn't have time to tell you, but they're both very bullish on gold, and Bob, especially on gold mining companies, if we're in a deflationary environment, as he thinks we are, we're going to come right back with Frank Callahan. He's the president of a very interesting company, Barkerville Gold Mines, and Frank will be right with us on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Okay. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with Frank Callahan to help me wrap up today's show. Frank is the president of Barkerville Gold Mines, which just recently has consolidated, picked up a mill, consolidated with another company, and is moving towards production. Um, uh, Barkerville Gold Mines is uh, trades on the Toronto Exchange. BGM is the symbol with about 56 million shares outstanding. I think around 92 cents uh, last I looked. Uh, actually, up today when I looked earlier in a terrible market. Uh, welcome, Frank. Uh, back to turning hard times into good times. Well, we're a defensive stock now, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> At 92 cents, huh? Well, there look, you go. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks, a few weeks back. Could you get, just give us an update? How is your your mine up there, I think it's the, is it the QR gold mine in British Columbia? How is that progressing, and are you getting close to production there now? We certainly are. Actually, I was up there yesterday uh, just checking on both uh, mining projects. Uh, since we spoke last, on January the, which was the 10th, on January the 11th, we actually received our mining permit and our pre-feasibility study for the QR mine. Uh, we're really, really excited about that. So that was all 
uh, and being up there yesterday looking at the property, they'll actually uh, be physically mining by the 1st of March. The equipment is, was arriving, the first lot of equipment was arriving today. Uh, we've actually only taken delivery of, of the property uh, two weeks ago. So, um, so from that perspective, it's all just move along really well. At Things same- are moving along well then. Uh, that's good to hear. So when do you think you might actually start producing gold? So we'll actually be, our, we're planning on actually firing the mill up uh, for production in May. Uh, we're going to stockpile for the months of March and April and probably the first part of May. Uh, the facility is a 900-ton-a-day facility. It's capable of producing up to 70,000 ounces a year. We, we're anticipating doing uh, in the neighborhood of about 50,000 ounces for our fiscal year ourselves, which would be March the 1st to February 28th next year. I see. Well, that's not bad for starters. I, I should tell our listeners, those that are maybe not that familiar with gold mining, it's a, it's a tough business, Frank. It's a very, very seldom do you see a mining company go into production on schedule uh, and, and come in uh, at under or, or at the capital expenditure projected rate. So how are you guys doing in that regard? I mean, you're, you're, are you a little pretty much keeping up on schedule? Or are you a little behind, or how, how's that well, working out? We would, the, uh, getting the, all of the, um, the process of actually making the acquisition took a little longer than anticipated, just mm-hmm. on the hurdles that I had to go through on meeting the requirements with the exchange. But that's all taken place. We've actually even closed the financing in the last couple of weeks of uh, about $13.7 million we just put in the bank, and, and we have no debt. Uh, in the acquisition, that was a court-approved acquisition we bought, what would be if you had to go put it into production today, it'd be a, a, a 900 ton a day facility. Uh, it'd probably cost you, it'd take you about 10 years to probably permit it and somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, 50 to $70 million to build the facility. So we've got all of that now under our belt and the ounces that come with that property. So collectively now all 43-101 compliant, uh, we're sitting with a uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, measured and indicated in excess of 700,000 ounces in an inferred category, but another 180,000 ounces, somewhere in that, mm-hmm. in that range. And, and drilling, we actually announced also in the month of January, we made a discovery of finding gold in a different rock type. This would be now the fourth rock type that we've actually found gold in that it has not been recorded as being gold-carrying uh, uh, gold before. So we're really excited about that, too. Mm-hmm. So they're drilling on that. I saw it was noticed that yesterday. Okay, Frank, I think we talked about a little, uh, before sort of the projected economics here. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about what it might cost you to produce those fifty to 70,000 ounces? What is the cash cost uh, projected again? Sure. The, the projected cash cost at the QR is uh, in the neighborhood of 800 an ounce. Uh, we expect we're anticipating being able to bring that number down. And at the uh, wayside facility or the, um, uh, the Bonanza Ledge facility, we're about $509 an ounce, I think. I think that's what our cash costs are for both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what sort of you? So, what do you think you can do? To, are you have you talked uh, publicly at all about what you think you might be able to do in terms of cash flow over the first twelve months of the of your production? Well, let's uh, say uh, let's say from May until March, your fiscal year in. So, our, our anticipated we're actually hoping to produce fifty thousand ounces this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, this uh, calendar, this fiscal year, in that this is fiscal year, that's correct. Mm-hmm. So, the, the dates that you mentioned from March mm-hmm. the first to uh, the end of next February, right? Um, and that'd be taking twenty five thousand ounces from the QR facility and about twenty five and twenty five thousand ounces from the Bonanza Ledge facility. Okay. Okay, so people could do their math and sort of get back of the envelope, figure out what you might be able to do in terms of cash flow. I could say that. You're looking at uh, a company that has a relatively low market cap, I, I think. Uh, 
Uh, Frank, and you also have a tremendous amount of exploration potential. Would you like care to just tell our listeners again a little bit about that? We've got about 30 seconds left. Sure. If the you could just tell us a little bit about what the exploration potential is. You just mentioned you found gold in another rock type, but give us an idea of the, of the scope. Well, the belt is 60 kilometers long. It's had seven former producing gold mines on it, and they're all on one mine trend. And if you thought of a set of railroad tracks, we're over on the other track, and we're actually found gold in this rock formation. The belt is some 60 kilometers or better than 25 miles long, and uh, it's virtually all unexplored. It's a, a world-famous camp, and uh, it's just we've had fractured ownership. We finally, it's taken us 15 years. We put the whole land package together, and now we're ready to go and start exploring. So it's, it's a, if you used a model like Plan Geo Detour, we are the detour of definitely of British Columbia. Very interesting uh, prospects for sure. Well, folks, I'm, a, I'm extremely bullish on gold mining, as I've said many times on this show. Uh, for reasons that Bob Hoy has pointed out, that the real price of gold rises in these credit contractions if you buy Bob's notion of a credit contraction. So, Frank, I want to thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Uh, and thank you also for, for being a sponsor to this show because you help make it financially possible for people like Bob Hoy and John Williams and many other wonderful guests to come on. And, and I think uh, you know, you're doing a service as well in allowing people to see the potential for them to build their own financial resources by investing in companies that have a chance to, to, uh, to produce real wealth, which is really what gold is. So thanks a lot, Frank, for coming on. Folks, next week we're going to have uh, another very exciting guest. Martin Gross is going to be with us. He's written a book titled Suicide Nation and uh, a very, very important read. I think it's probably Martin is going to tell us about how the U.S. has gotten itself into such trouble and, and indirectly tell us why gold is the place to be going forward. Uh, I want to just remind you again that you can take advantage of uh, our trial, special trial offers. Uh, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? My newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and Roger Wiegand's letter, Trader Tracks, by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or going to miningstocks.com. Also, I want to thank um, the people that have made this program logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, uh, she's uh, always a wonderful help in lining up guests and, and getting things organized for me. Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, and Justin Jackman, my engineer. And thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Thanks again to our sponsors for making it financially possible. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point.